Welcome to the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. Today, my guest is Joanna Williams. Joanna is an author, journalist, and the director of the think tank Keo. She's recently written a fantastic book called How Woke Won, the elitist movement that threatens democracy, tolerance, and reason. Joanna, thank you for joining me. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. So your new book, How Woke Won, has it won? It seems quite pessimistic as a title. Well, it is, and I have to say it's the thing that's kept me awake at night for the past few months since hitting send on that final copy a few months ago. And there's so many stories in the news where you think, oh, no, I'm wrong. Woke hasn't won. Elon Musk's going to buy Twitter. Ricky Gervais has just had a new show on Netflix. You know, this is completely wrong. But I stand by the title, and I think the title actually seems more important now than even when I was writing it. And I stand by it because I think where woke has become very dominant is in all of our major institutions. So if you think about the education sector right the way through from nurseries, schools, universities, the police force, the civil service, uh, museums, art galleries, the media, the BBC, are so dominated by woke values. And those are the institutions that really shape and influence what happens in society. So even though we can see some pushback at the edges, which is definitely something I'd welcome, unfortunately, I think there's a long way to go in challenging the dominance of woke ideology more broadly. Now, one of the things you do in your book, which I think is very important and can't be done enough, because I think people get very confused about the term woke, and a lot of people, critics, will say, well, woke just means to be fair to people, to be alert to injustice, especially racism, which is, after all, the dictionary definition of the term. Why is that a problem? Well, I think it's a bit disingenuous when people say that, because, of course, I'm very alert to racism and sexism. I would hope everybody would be, and I would hope everybody would call out racism, sexism, homophobia whenever they see it. But I think people who are woke don't actually mean just being alert to um, social injustices. They mean responding to them in a particular way, in the way that they approve of, in the way that they think is the best way to go about dealing with these things. And it can become very authoritarian, very prescriptive in certain ways that you're, you're meant to react when you see these social injustices. So that's why I object to it. I object to it because on the one hand, it's very prescriptive, it's very authoritarian, it's telling us that there's a correct way to respond. But more to the point, often the correct way to respond, I think, is actually very backward, is, is very regressive in the way that it, it gets, it, it turns back the progress that's been made in some of these areas. So if you take racism, for example, I mean, I guess, so I'm your typical Gen Xer, kind of late 40s now, and I guess when I was growing up, the way that we were told really was the best way to approach racism was to try and be colorblind, to try and see pe people rather than skin colors, to judge people according to their, their character and the qualities that they had about them as individuals. Whereas woke seems to be saying completely the opposite, that that's the wrong thing to do, that you have to see skin colour, you have to categorise people according to their sex or their sexuality or their race and their ethnicity. And, and all my kind of progressive ideals that there's one race, the human race, are poo-pooed nowadays by woke people as, as being really backward. And I just think this is very unhelpful. So we do need a shorthand to describe the, this ideology because it, it, there's lots of overlapping elements to it. There's the critical race theory element, there's queer theory, there's a tr gender identity ideology, and all of these things can quite conveniently be, be put together under this shorthand bracket. 
Um, but the problem with that is, of course, then you have activists saying, well, uh, this is just a right-wing slur, whereas, of course, they used to describe themselves exactly. with this word. So, and it, seemed, it feels as though whatever terms we might come up with to describe this, this movement, it will always be delegitimized. They will change those definitions because part of their strategy continually is to change the meaning of words while denying, denying that they are changing the meaning of words. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, I think I've got very little sympathy for these people who say, oh, this is an insult. You know, this is just a right wing slur. Because I did, I did think long and hard about the title and about using that word. And, and a number of people have said to me, you know, I'm being deliberately provocative or I'm, I'm going to alienate an awful lot of people. And wouldn't, wouldn't it be better if I was just more kind of in the centre and, and reaching out and being nice to these people? But you know what? They don't reach out and be nice to me. Certainly <laughs> <laughs> <Let> not. <laughs> I know that makes me sound a bit childish and a bit petulant. But actually, these people are very powerful. I think that the, the kind of woke ideas are very very powerful in society, very influential, and they love nothing more than people who are promoting these ideas, love, no love nothing more than for us not to join the dots. Mm -hmm. You know, I, th I agree with you completely. I think there are these very overlapping circles of people who are perhaps inclined to um, think about, think in terms of critical race theory or in, think of, in terms of gender ideology. And if you drew a Venn diagram, there'd be a huge overlap in the middle of people who hold all of those ideas and are in a position to promote these ideas as well, be it through universities or be it through the media. And I think it really suits their interests for us not to join the dots on that and not to look and say, ah, so if you believe this, you're very likely to also think this. You're also likely to probably be quite middle class, mm -hmm. have quite a decent salary to be working in this particular area and to have this influence. Actually, I quite like the word woke as a way of drawing attention to this and actually saying to them, kind of own the power that you've got, own the ideas that you are promoting. I mean, that, shy away from it. that makes absolute sense to me. But you can, you know, uh, pretty reliably predict uh, a, a person's opinions on a variety of things if you know that they subscribe to critical race theory or, or the discourse of anti-racism or anything like this. You can do that um, because it does have a kind of hive mind quality. And one of the things that... I find troubling about the movement is that it seems to depend on the surrendering of critical faculties. It feels like a faith. It really does. And I worry that a lot of that comes through education. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, to me, so I began my career, like you, I think, Andrew, as a teacher. And central to my being in the classroom, being a teacher, and, and I carried this on when I worked in the university as well, is that really what I think doesn't matter. You know, my, my job as a teacher or my job as a university lecturer was to push students, to challenge them, to get them to question why do they think what they think. And um, I finished teaching a, a higher education module quite recently, just a couple of months ago. And in the last class, one of the students said to me, you know, well, what do I personally think? about a particular thing. It was very interesting that they could ask me that because mm. they, they clearly didn't know. So I thought, saw that really as a mark of success Absolutely. that they were struggling to work out what I thought. But also the question kind of threw me because I thought, oh, you know, I, I so much park that at the door of the room and I so much try and just respond to the opposite of whatever they are saying yeah. that I've, I've almost lost for that three hours I'm teaching the sense of what do I actually think here. But I think so many teachers nowadays or university lecturers don't do that. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they have an idea that they want to promote that that's 
become almost intrinsically bound up in the body of knowledge that they're actually teaching, where they see good teaching as being, have students become more woke almost as a result of their teaching. Successful teaching is students now buy into these ideas of critical race theory or gender ideology. So that means that to be a student, if you think critically, you're actually doing something wrong and yes. you could risk being marked down in your essays because you're challenging the, the ideas that you're meant to buy into. So this is a huge problem because that is, of course, anti-educational. Um, and we've seen, I think it was at the University of Stirling, where students had to satisfy requirements in a test in order to matriculate. And some of the statements they had to agree with were things to do with acknowledging white privilege or white guilt and that kind of thing. So that's compelled speech as far as I can see. Absolutely. And do you know what's really sad and troubling is that this extends even beyond students but into academics themselves. I mean, academics are meant to undergo this kind of diversity training on promotion applications to demonstrate how they've met, um, how they meet the university's equality, diversity, inclusion policies. Again, not in a, a critical way, not in a way which allows them the freedom to say, well, you know, this is what I do in the classroom, but, but in the very strict kind of terms in which racism, sexism are understood nowadays, they have to demonstrate having met, met these particular values. So I think it comes right at the top where almost it's embarrassing to say it, but the university becomes the place where you leave your critical faculties at the door, whether you're staff or student, and you are expected to kind of imbibe this culture. And, and these are then people who are going out into our institutions, who are becoming the next generation of teachers, journalists, etc. It seems so perverse, though. I mean, that you're describing uh, a group of people who are, I suppose, activists first and foremost, and then academics second. Um, but then how do we push back against that? Because, for instance, the National Education Union has recently said that there is an urgent need to decolonise every level of the curriculum. They've also said uh, that there is a need for activist teachers. So in other words, the biggest teachers union in the country is saying we need teachers to be activists, which is the opposite of what a pedagogue would think. No, completely, completely. And this starts at the very, very young, with the very, very youngest children. I mean, there've been a couple of examples recently, one in the West Midlands, one I think in Islington in London, of people who are kind of leading training courses uh, for nursery workers teaching nursery workers that babies um, can start being racist from the age of like three months. It, it, it's just bizarre and perverse, you know, and it, it's poisonous, I think, this, these kind of ideas as they take root. I mean, how do we fight back? It's a really, really good question, particularly in relation to education. I think we've got to assert what is the proper purpose of a university or a school. Um, and to me, that is about subject knowledge. It's about critical thinking. It's about education in the truest sense of the word, and not about socialization. You know, I think having a much clearer demarcation between the roles and responsibilities of parents and the roles and responsibilities of teachers so that's interesting because I always felt that there was a, an element of socialisation within the teacher's role insofar as if a pupil in, in the classroom said something that was outrageous or, or racist or sexist or whatever or swore or, or hit a child, you, as a teacher you, you have a responsibility to intervene and, and say no that's, that behaviour is not acceptable. That's a form of socialisation isn't it? It is but 
And, and I would absolutely agree with you. That's a very, very important thing to do. And the sad thing is we've seen some examples in schools very recently that have hit the national headlines where teachers are absolutely not doing that okay. bizarrely, you know, given all these woke kind of uh, ideologies that we're talking about. They're actually allowing genuine examples of horrific bullying to, to pass, you know, which, which is a really terrible thing. Um, so, so they're kind of abdicating responsibility in some ways. But I, I think what's happened is that having lost sight of, of the role of the teacher in imparting subject knowledge, this kind of role of imparting values has, has crept in instead. And it gives the role a sense of purpose, if you like. If you have no faith in subject knowledge, if, if for you, if you're an English teacher, for example, and you see the, sub, the body of subject knowledge you're supposed to teach, the canon, the literary canon, as being tainted by association with dead white men, you know, so what, why would you want to have anything to do with that other than to kind of poo-poo it and yeah. hold it up as an example of all that's bad in the world? So this creates this kind of moral problem because you, you have this vacuum then as to why you're there. There's no sense of conviction about the um, job you're doing in terms of promoting a love of literature. Yeah. So instead you bring in all these other kind of values to promote. So to go back to your example, you know, when I was teaching, if I'd had a kid shout out a racist comment across the classroom, for example, immediately you stop, you say, no, that's out of order. Don't you do that. Do that again. You'll be out. You know, you immediately draw a line under it. But the reason why you do that and the reason why you deal with it quickly and, and concisely is because you want to get back to teaching the subject knowledge. You want to get back on track. What worries me nowadays um, when we talk about socialization, replacing education, is that it's not dealt with quickly and immediately. It, it becomes the sole purpose because there's nothing else to get back to, if you like. Yes. We're gonna spend hours talking about why little Johnny said a bad word. And you do wonder, don't you? I mean, we see all these uh, TikTok videos of teachers in America boasting about how they're teaching their little kids about uh, gender identity ideology. And of course, at some point, some of these kids are going to push back. Uh, you know, kids aren't just mindless drones that go along with everything they say. Um, what will happen to those children who want to be unorthodox in their thinking? And, and you know, we saw recently that girl, uh, the story of the girl at the school who questioned a visiting speaker about uh, gender identity ideology and reportedly was bullied, spat at, shouted at, and the school failed to stand up for her. I mean, that's a particularly egregious example, isn't horrific, it? Horrific, absolutely horrific. I mean, I guess what worries me is that some of these kids, are a bit like um, the girl you're talking about at that school, you read those stories and you think, this just sounds like an incredibly bright girl who has asked some critical questions and she's exactly the type of kid you would want to be going on to university. Now I know nothing about her personally and I really hope she's still on track to get good exam results and do that. My worry is that the more kids who want to question things um, get punished effectively for doing that. Um, the more they self-select out of academia, you know, they decide, well, school's just not the place for me. University is clearly not somewhere where I belong. You know, I'm sure a lot of people might think, well, that's no big loss. Uh, you know, they'll be better served going out into work and just getting on with the job. Why would they want to go to university anyway? But the problem is then the universities become even more, as you were describing earlier, this kind of hive mind, this conformist groupthink place, because anybody who thinks differently has either been wheedled out by not fulfilling the requirements or has self-selected out, so is not there to begin with. And again, you come back to the idea 
and if that happens, they've won. You know, um, I think most people who work in university who see themselves as quite activists actually wouldn't like, don't like having these battles over free speech. You know, they, were, they don't want to be arguing about free speech as much as they are. But if you think about it, when arguments about free speech are taking place, it's because um, difficult questions are being asked, controversial speakers are being invited onto campus. When there's no free speech arguments to be had, it's because nobody's asking those awkward questions anymore. If you can stop the likes of Kathleen Stock, for example, ever being recruited to work in a university in the first place, then 10 years on from now, you needn't have a free speech argument because you've got these people out. That is a worry, isn't it? It's almost preemptive. Well, I mean, you've been writing about academic freedom for a long time. You wrote the book, uh, Academic Freedom in an Age of Conformity, and this predates um, the woke movement. We didn't even know that word, did we? Uh, I think, when was that book? When... Uh, that was 2016. Yeah, so I mean, it was just sort of, it wasn't as commonplace as it is now. So this is clearly something that you've been identifying for a long time. What do you say, though, to those academics who say, this is a chimera, you know, academics can say whatever they want, they can write whatever they want. Uh, you, you're just picking on a few examples of, well, aberrations, mm -hmm. I suppose, and, and, and saying that's the norm. What do you say to those? Um, so I think the extremists are a really small minority, thank goodness. Um, and I think at the other end of that, you've got a minority of people who are pushing back against this. But I think in both teaching and in academia, you've got a bulk of people in the middle who, again, I actually have quite a lot of sympathy with, really just want a quiet life for themselves. Yeah. They want to go in, they want to do their job, do their job well, um, and then go home again at the end of the day to their families. And they're not there to be activists, and neither are they there to challenge activists. But there's a problem, isn't there? Because that minority that you're describing, who are the activist minority, who are very loud, very vociferous, they can be quite intimidating. And they, they can tend to have a disproportionate clout within meetings, within this policy decision making, all of that kind of thing. Is that not true? Yeah, I think that is absolutely true. And this is where then the people who are in the middle, like say these kind of well-meaning, just wanting to get on with the job type of people in the middle, you know, sometimes they do need to be a bit braver mm. and actually stick their heads up over the parapet and actually say, hold on a minute, this is wrong. And I know quite a few people who actually do that. Yes. Um, but, and it's important, people have to do that because otherwise this minority of activists within the profession becomes ever more emboldened. Yes. You know, they become ever more vociferous and the more they think they can get away with it, the more they think they can push and intimidate and bully people into their way of thinking, the more they will. So it's a, is it just a question of numbers insofar as if sufficient numbers of people are brave enough to make a noise, uh, things will start to change? On the flip side of that, of course, is you must recognise that uh, the people who do that tend to become casualties of council culture. They are the ones who are then targeted, quite viciously sometimes. Absolutely. And again, you look at universities as the prime example of this. You know, people like Kathleen Stock, who have lost their jobs, mm. been really hung out to dry over some of these issues. And, and it, it's very cruel what happens. And it could be very, very difficult for people to have to deal with personally. Um, but. I think, I think ultimately that, that is what is required, a sense of there being safety in numbers. The more people can, can bound to get bond together, if you like, and recognise that they're not the only ones who think like this, the more you realise that there are other people on your side, yes. the, the easier it becomes to speak out against some of these things. And this doesn't just go for academia, I think this goes for all walks of life. So in terms of uh, writing the book, I mean, one of the things that I, one of the reasons I think that, that these books are important 
is because um, there is a lack of understanding about not just the, the language, but the concepts behind a lot of this stuff. People hear the phrase anti-racism and they think that's great because we're all opposed to racism. And of course, it takes quite a while to explain that anti-racism as promoted by the likes of Ibram X. Kendi actually promotes racism. So what, what do we do with that? And Because that message doesn't appear to be getting through. No, absolutely. And again, you know, to keep on going back to the book title, this yeah. is another reason why they've won, if you like, because I think what some of these woke activists have done so superbly well is they've assumed the moral high ground and yeah. they've kind of become entrenched there as if everything that's morally good is, is that they own the moral goodness in the world and anybody who challenges them must be you know, the most terrible person and people don't want to feel like that, which is understandable. You know, nobody wants to be accused of being racist or sexist or anything like that. Yes. Um, but, but you know, I think there's no easy way to do it, but it just requires at every step of the way saying, no, you know, my three month old baby does not perceive racial differences. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, even if on some bizarre you know, judgment, a three month old baby can perceive racial differences, that doesn't translate translate into being racist, it actually robs the meaning of race. Racism loses all meaning when it's, it's associated with three-month-old babies. It's quite clear that you've read a lot of the, the uh, woke people's literature on this stuff. Has there ever been points where you've thought, that's a good point, you know, they, they, they're, they're onto something there? Oh, <laughs> that's a very, very difficult question. Um, I think I think where I don't know about onto something, but where I envy them, I guess, is this moral certainty, because I think people who are not woke, I mean, I have to confess and people might be surprised to hear this, but I question myself constantly. You know, I'm always thinking, have I got this right? Have I got this wrong? You know, I was speaking to somebody the other day and I came away from a conversation and kind of had a bit of a sleepless night thinking, did I make myself clear? Was there a chance that I could have come across as, as actually saying something racist, even though I, I absolutely promise you I didn't mean to come across in that way at all? Whereas when you read the books of um, people like Sean Fay or Owen Jones, they seem to have this absolute moral certainty that they're never wrong, that they are completely right, and that they um, know what is right and wrong for all time. I know what you mean. It must be comf it must be quite a comforting feeling to have that sensation to be like the Laurie Pennies of the world. Where you, you know, at the same time, I don't envy them because I read their work and I think you've you've surrendered critical thinking. You you have to to have that lack of humility, to have that sense <laughs> of everything you say must be must be gospel. You can't be a critical thinker. You just can't. No, no. I mean, Laurie Penny's book is an absolute perfect example of all this. I mean, the other way that they managed to do this, which is kind of amazing, whenever you start reading one of these books, you get a few pages in, and my kind of tip to <laughs> readers is to look at the point where they claim that their own victim status. I mean, normally you don't even have to get a few pages in. Yeah. These are often books which are written by incredibly middle-class, well-off, well-connected, um, privileged, people but it normally takes them like a paragraph to drop in the fact <laughs> that you know because of their um, struggles with their gender identity or because of their ethnicity or you know because of their it could be anything really you know actually they have this victim status yeah. which gives them these unique insights and passes for critical thinking you know their, their identity becomes the reason why they don't have to engage in critical thinking. And this is something that has now been long established, this standpoint epistemology idea of, you know, if you are in an oppressed class, 
you you have a heightened insight into the world, and it and it, and it suggests that uh, and that that to me is a is is not firstly not necessarily true, uh, uh, and it sounds like you're victim bashing to say that, but I don't think it is true. I don't think as a gay person I have particular insights into the world. I have experiences that maybe a straight person doesn't have, but that could be said about any human being. We all have individual experiences that someone else doesn't have. What is it you think has created this this sense in which victimhood now is attendant with with power. Mm -hmm. No, because it absolutely is. And I mean, just to kind of come back on what you were saying there, I mean, it's most ridiculous to think that the people with the most insights are the people who are most victimized in society. I mean, if that was truly the case, you'd be taking kind of villages from the most impoverished um, parts of Africa, and they would be coming up with a kind of Nobel Prize winning science. And obviously, that's not happening. And it's obviously nothing to do with their intelligence. But just because of the circumstances and the levels of education and the perception that there's no connection between victim status and um, knowledge. Uh, but, but yeah, this has become very interlinked with power. And I think it, it's, again, it's, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to call the book How Woke One, because these people deny the power that they possess. You yes. know, there's this kind of bizarre game where the more powerful they become, the more they have to defer to themselves as, as victims or present themselves as being victimized in some way. Um, I, you know, it's a very complicated and involved process, which I don't think is new. I think it's been in development over a, a number of decades now. And I think it's very much linked to how we perceive of individuals. And you can see it even with, with kind of the idea behind toxic masculinity, for example, where some of the values that were once considered to be very positive values, like stoicism, strength, um, fortitude, um, courage, bravery, you know, these kind of values have switched from being positive um, to being considered very negative mm -hmm. values. It's much better to be in touch with your feelings, to be emoting, to be sensitive, than it is to be stoical and, and demonstrate a kind of emotional strength. And this is a huge cultural shift, but they've kind of ridden the coattails, if you like, of this cultural shift and, and internalized it, they've personalized it so that it's about them. So they've become the living embodiment of somebody who doesn't demonstrate fortitude and stoicism, but demonstrates the capacity to emote. And but the trouble with that emotive approach is that you actually end up uh, damaging your, the potential for objectivity. I mean, there's a reason why in a, a murder trial, you don't ask the victim's families to, to set the, uh, the punishment because they're too emotionally involved. And yet, and yet, within the woke movement, there is a sense in which lived experience uh, should root you at the center of any, th any discussion about a particular issue. Yeah, you're right. But also, they, it, the thing with woke is it's not even internally consistent because you're absolutely right. This is what this is what they say. You know that that we should we shouldn't we should disregard statistics on racial disparities. For example, if we have statistics that show that some ethnic groups actually perform a lot better than white working class children at school, mm. you know that that counts for nothing. We should disregard that. We should focus instead on people's lived experiences of racism. So, so that's that's the kind of claim that's made. You you can't read anything from these statistics. You have to look instead at lived experiences of racism. 
okay. So then along comes um, a black person who says, well, actually, do you know what? My lived experience isn't one of racist abuse at every turn, you know, not denying that racism exists, but I've had a lot of experiences which have been very positive and have not been marked by racism. Suddenly that's the wrong kind of lived experience. Right. You know, this is the wrong person. So you've got this kind of inconsistency where lived experience is the most important thing, but some people's lived experiences are worth more than others. And that leads into another area that is problematic, isn't it? With the idea of lived experience uh, leads to multiple ways of knowing, as in each individual has their own truth. And you hear this all the time, <laughs> I'm speaking my truth. Well, something is either true or it isn't. And, and I, I worry about that sort of destabilization of, of that matters a lot, actually, that we all have a shared idea of what is real and what is not. Absolutely, because that's the basis for dialogue. It's the basis for discussion. And, and this is my worry that woke leaves us increasingly polarised um, because you have your truth, I have my truth. And if they are incompatible, then we have no basis for a conversation to yeah. take place. We can only sit here talking now because we accept that there are certain truths in the world. It's very interesting, you know, how you see um, Megan, you know, she, she went on Oprah to talk about her truth. Yes. And she was praised for doing this. You know, she's told her truth. You go, Megan, you know, tell the world your truth. And, uh, you know, I think the Queen actually had the perfect response to that. Recollections may vary. Yeah, recollections may vary. <laughs> exactly right. But that's not that's not acknowledged or accepted. I mean, that, that's I mean, I'm not saying that, that there isn't something to learn from someone's experience of the world. I think there absolutely is. And there are people who have experienced things that I never will. And I'm more than happy to listen to what they've got to say and learn from that. And I think that's valuable. But I don't think you can extrapolate from an individual experience and, and make a conclusion about the whole of society on that basis. And the, the Megan example is, is a pertinent one because uh, I don't know if you saw the interview with um, Piers Morgan and Alex Beresford, I think, on Good Morning Britain, where Piers Morgan said to him, well, she was caught in a lie. She said this thing about uh, the, the prince not having his title, uh, having it withdrawn, and that was proven to be wrong. And Be Beresford said, but that's her lived experience. Yeah. And he said it twice, but that's her lived experience. Yeah. Well, well, but it wasn't true. So it doesn't matter what her lived experience was. It doesn't matter how she interpreted it. She got it wrong. No. Why can't we just accept that? No, absolutely. I must have been about, I think I was about eight or nine when my dad taught me this trick with a coin. And he said, you know, I'm going to call heads or tails. He said, heads I win, tails you lose. And, you know, I'm yeah, embarrassed yeah, to admit yeah. at the age of eight or nine, it took me a good few goes to <laughs> realise what was going on there. <laughs> but I think that's a really good metaphor for what happens with this kind of woke worldview. Heads I win, tails you lose. You know, I'll cite statistics when it suits me. If I don't like the statistics, I'll cite lived experience. If you don't like the lived experience, I'll cite other lived experience. You know, you... you challenge my lived experience you've lost you know you accept my lived experience well that's rigging the game isn't it i mean exactly. this is like when was it i think it was philip schofield asked shola moshog bamimu uh well she, he was saying that uh, what, what what's evidence of uh, racism against Meghan markle in the press what's the evidence and uh, and, and um, dr shola said well even you asking that question <laughs> is evidence of systemic racism so even challenging is evidence of the point they want to prove, right? So that so you get yourself in this circular bind. Completely. But you see, you see that this is at the very, very heart of the woke worldview. So I, I actually think this was a point I stole from you, Andrew, in something you'd written earlier. But 
Um, if you look at it with racism, for example, if you say you're not racist nowadays, well, that's a terrible sign of your white supremacy. You know, you're a really bad person if you say you're not racist. You're clearly racist if you say you're not racist. Whereas if you say you are racist, then obviously you're racist as well. <laughs> you know, so you just, like you say, the game's rigged. You, you just cannot win. You're either racist or you're not racist, in which case you are racist. So that's not sustainable. Is it? I mean, we, we can't live in a society where we all have to agree that everything everything we we stand for is underpinned, that we're all complicit with a system of white supremacy, because uh, most of us just don't believe that's true. Uh, well, exactly. And this is, this is, again, I suppose, what gives me a bit of hope in pushing back against this, because I do think the vast majority of people recognise that this is rubbish, yeah. essentially, and, and not an accurate reflection of the way the world works. Now, you've been uh, writing a lot for a long time about feminism as well, and you wrote a fantastic book about feminism. I think it was called Women Versus Feminism, uh, which I read and I, I really enjoyed. And um, that was considered quite contentious uh, at the time. Do you want to just sort of um, uh, give us an overview of, of your view here? Because I think your, your feeling is that uh, the way that feminism, the course that feminism has taken, has been steered into, and this is a related theme, into the area of victimhood, uh, whereas, and you're suggesting that's not empowering for women. No, absolutely not. And but I think it it does feed into the the whole kind of outlook around woke and the discussion we're having around this more broadly, where you've got this kind of bizarre thing where um, one of the key strands of woke thought, particularly around racism, is that one of the biggest sins you can commit is cultural appropriation. You know, you, you shouldn't, if you're white, a white woman, you shouldn't wear hoop earrings, you shouldn't get your hair in dreadlocks because that's appropriating um, a different culture and exploiting it and profiting from it from your own gain. But, but you see with feminism and a lot of these movements that they're very keen, the, the people who are at the head of these movements are very keen to appropriate the disadvantages, the genuine disadvantages experienced by some women. So clearly some women and obviously some men are disadvantaged. I mean, you would say working class people earn a lot less, struggle a lot more financially, are more likely to live in worse housing, live in um, poor areas, have uh, perhaps even worse schools, unfortunately shouldn't be, but, but do have. Um, so there are genuine problems and disadvantages, but what you've got is you've got an elite group of women at the top who kind of become the spokespeople for feminism, who appropriate those disadvantages, who look at the experiences of some women, the lived experiences or the statistical disadvantages, and kind of claim them for themselves. It becomes their disadvantages. So if you look, I think the, the number one example of this has got to be the women who work at the BBC as presenters, who earn huge salaries. I mean, salaries that most people could only dream of earning, and yet have kind of talk, talked about the gender pay gap, you know, as if they're the, the victims of this real discrimination and harassment and um, kind of terrible suffering um, that they've had to endure. Now, the, the people who I think are really badly paid who work at the BBC, who will most likely be women, are the cleaners, the catering staff, the people, the women who are probably looking after the children of uh, the female BBC presenters, looking after their elderly relatives. You know, there are a lot of women who are very, very badly paid. But, but feminism has become this kind of elite movement which appropriates victimhood of, of the most disadvantaged women to further their own gain. It becomes yeah. this kind of elite club, if you like, which um, depends upon all women seeing themselves as victims. I think there is a very interesting thing happening within feminism at the moment, though. I think in the in the wake of the woke movement, uh, 
you're seeing feminists from the right, from the left, um, women coming together and saying, actually, this gender identity ideology, which, which is at the heart of the woke movement, I mean, all woke people believe in it, um, is a real threat to women's rights. And, it's, and it seems to me that it's made a lot of feminists who formerly would have, uh, I suppose, not dismissed, but have played down the biological differences between men and women, they're now having to reassert those differences and saying, actually, women's sex-based rights have to be grounded in an acknowledgement of the biological reality that men and women are different. Absolutely. I mean, you were saying a little while ago, you know, the fact that I wrote Academic Freedom in an Age of Conformity in 2016 and the word woke just wasn't in common parlance then. So I wrote Women versus Feminism more recently. You know, that was kind of end of 2017 when I wrote that. So you're thinking this is only five years ago. But if I was to sit down and write that book again today, I would approach it completely differently. I mean, for one thing, back in 2017, I just assumed that feminism was kind of intrinsically connected to women and everyone knew what a woman was because <laughs> it was kind of obvious. If I was writing that book today, I would have to have a, a first chapter, which was completely on, well, what is a woman? Well, doesn't that show how regressive the woke movement is? Because, you know, we, we knew that yeah. and we weren't wrong, yeah. right? Yeah. And now we're having to explain something that we once all knew. Exactly. But to be very, very honest, I'm not even sure I would write a book crit so critical of feminism nowadays, because I think some of the feminists nowadays, the, the radical feminists, are really at the forefront of pushing back against the worst excesses of the woke movement, particularly in relation to gender ideology. And those are women I would really want to celebrate. Mm. I, you know, I would really want to hold up as being um, people who've taken so much flack personally. I mean, you can look at Alison Bailey, Maya Fostata, Kathleen Stock, you know, the, or J.K. Rowling, mm. the, the prime example. I mean, she says she's had so many death threats, she could paper her house in death threats, sustained the most vile abuse. But I think if it wasn't for them, it, my job would be a whole lot more difficult. It kind of becomes easier for me to make some of these arguments because some of these great women have gone before me, if you like, or working alongside me. Um, they probably hate me for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, have, have helped open some doors for discussion, have helped Absolutely. make these things come into the public debate. Because that's interesting. I'm seeing more and more these alliances that you never would have anticipated. I had a conservative woman and a socialist woman on my show the other day, and they, they made the point that, you know, we can have these discussions later on. We can't have any disputes uh, about these political issues until we've resolved this issue because this is this is something that, that threatens us all. Absolutely. And, you know, again, you were saying right at the beginning that there's a kind of overlap of people who uh, kind of think critical uh, gender, um, uh, kind of buy into gender ideology, buy into queer theory, buy into critical race theory. But what's really interesting is I think that's also beginning to work a lot more in the other direction as well. So you see a number of, of women academics in all walks of life who are really um, beginning to question gender ideology, transgender ideology, who are really beginning to think very critically about women's rights and what's important there, who immediately they start going down that line, come up against threats to their free speech, and then realise the absolute importance of having to argue for free speech as well. So you get kind of different overlapping groups as well, Absolutely. I think. I mean, I've seen uh, in the past, I've seen some radical feminists who've been quite against free speech, actually. And, and th those ideas are being revised a little bit now. Yeah. And I think in particular with one of the things that does, con uh, uh, that all of these branches, these offshoots of the woke movement do definitely share, and at the core, is this mistrust of language, is this idea that words can be harmful, therefore we need censorship of one form or another, whether that's Silicon Valley censorship or the government coming in, or hate speech laws against misgendering or whatever that might be. Why is it, do you think, that at the heart of all of this, 
is this view that language is dangerous. Well, because I agree with you, but I also disagree with you a little bit. So I, I think it looks like it's a debate about language. It looks like it's saying language is dangerous. What they really mean is people are dangerous. Um, that, that if we let people get together and say what they really think, you know, then all hell will break out. Right. You know, we, we must stop people being able to say what they really think. So the debate focuses on language. It focuses on clamping down on free speech. But, but the real worry is the plebs, the masses, the great unwashed. They start getting together and saying what they really think about things. They will threaten the, the position, the status of the people who are in control. I mean, that's it. You know, I, I, sorry, I'm being a bit harsh on you there. I think... Oh, no, it's fine. <laughs> I welcome it. But I think... I, th I do think... Because I'm not scared of language, you see. <laughs> I think, you know, to go back on what I said, I think there is a sense in which they do recognise that language is vitally important because it, it shapes thought, you know, yes. it shapes our potential to be critical about things. The very fact that we're sat here now, obviously having this dialogue using language, but you, the way, the words you have, um, I'm going to come over all, all kind of structuralist here, but <laughs> I'll get my Ferdinand Saussure out. But um, the words you have do shape your capacity to think of things yeah. at heart. We, we think in words, and the more words we have available to us, the more range of things we can think about. And the more we are pushed into only using certain words, the more our, our actual thoughts are shaped. Well, I, suppose that's, I suppose that's what I mean insofar as the, the you know, the church resisted having the Bible in the vernacular for so long precisely because the more when people have access they are able to make their own minds up about these ideas and, and word, words are a conduit to knowledge and it, it enables us to collaborate and develop our ideas and so you think that's the, the fear really and if that's the case is it is it connected to this class issue because you've mentioned that most of these people tend to be quite posh right yeah. and and therefore is this fear of of, uh, of the plebs, as you put it, getting together and, and coming up with their own ideas. And is it just class snobbery? Yeah, I think a huge amount of it is uh, contempt, you know, just, just utter contempt for ordinary people. And I guess this is the how of how woke one. I, I think it's the, the collapse of the left, if you like, the, the switch from the left seeing the working class as a, a positive force for change in the world to seeing the working class as this kind of slightly icky thing <laughs> that they have to deal with from a distance who are, you know, not able to feed themselves properly without the government banning buy one get one free deals and imposing sugar taxes. You know, these people who have to be managed, um, these people who are probably racist, probably sexist, probably homophobic and transphobic, and, and we've got to control them and manage them, um, you know, preferably by hiving off politics to places like the EU so that these people don't even get to have a say on too much in, in terms of what's going on politically. And, and this kind of contempt for the working class, I think, really lies behind a lot of Woke's influence. I mean, that's, so Brexit has probably uh, laid the groundwork for this movement to really escalate because so much of it was based on this, this, uh, this false idea that people were voting uh, to leave the EU because they were racist and that there was a correlation between that and working class communities. Definitely. And I think it, it, no, it did definitely lay the groundwork for woke to happen. But I think it also 
meant that lots of trends that were bubbling under the surface became more explicit. So you were asking earlier, you know, the word woke wasn't around in 2016. I mean, I think it probably was. It was, but it wasn't. yes, it was, it, but it wasn't in, commonplace. Exactly, exactly. So, so what's changed then since 2016? Well, Brexit yeah. happened, Trump happened, you know, dem democracy kind of asserted itself. Um, the, the mass of the people went into ballot boxes, put a cross on a piece of paper, and make their voices heard in very real and very dramatic ways. Yes. And people, elite people, did not like that. And I, I worked in a university at the time when the referendum result came out. I was working at the University of, uh, university of Kent. Um, academics were literally crying. Yeah. You know, there were, there were literal tears on campus. I also happened to be in the US uh, shortly after um, Trump's electoral success. And you saw, very, I'm giving a talk at a university, and you a very similar dynamic of people crying. Yeah. And obviously, you know, there was a political shock, and you can ask questions, why were they so shocked? You know, for academics, shouldn't they have their ear to the ground, be understanding a little bit more what's going on? But there was the shock element, there was the fear element, but there was also something else. There was also a sense of, of a complete affront. You know, how dare our nice worldview, our, our nice world that we've created be shattered mm. by these people um, who we try to keep at a distance and we don't really like having their say, you know, how dare they infringe upon us so is, in this way. So is woke essentially anti-democratic? Oh, completely, utterly. I mean, very, very anti-democratic in a very explicit way. And again, you know, when, when these people stopped crying and kind of <laughs> mopped their tears up, um, quite, again, quite literally got together and said, how can we make sure this doesn't happen again? You know, how can we fight back against this um, within institutions? So in universities, for example, a big push on kind of global citizenship. How can we promote global citizenship in the context of education to make sure people have this pro-EU outlook? Yes. Um, how can we assert our point of view so that people don't, so this never happens again, you know, we're never left in this position. So I think, I think, you know, hate to, I don't want this to sound like big conspiracy theory or anything like that, because I think, I don't think woke is a conspiracy theory. I think it's just a series of kind of helpful coincidences yes. for people. But I think at the same time, we'd be naive to think that there wasn't some kind of quite explicit pushback and, and a more coherent attempt since 2016, 2017, to really, um, for, for the elite groups in society, to push back with their own agenda against political occurrences that they have found very unpalatable. Some people find it difficult to think about uh, what the best way out of that is, insofar as when Trump was elected, for instance, um, you would have thought that someone who was so anti-woke in his outlook, that would have made the situation better. But actually that made the woke movement more determined, more vociferous, more kind of uh, uh, intolerant, um, and also provided a kind of vindication of their fears. They had already decided that anyone who voted for Trump was an evil racist, and therefore him winning uh, showed them uh, that they were right, that the country is swarming with racists. Um, they weren't willing to uh, accept that their original premise was wrong. No, completely. <laughs> and this happens again and again, doesn't it? You know, every time a victory doesn't go their way, they see it as further proof and they double down. Yeah. And that to me means 
it feels like it's impossible to resist because any any effective resistance will be taken as evidence of the problem that they've identified to begin with. I think that's true. And I think you also see that in our current government um, that, you know, you could argue some of them are a bit half-hearted attempts to push back against woke. Some of them, I think, are genuine. I mean, things like the free speech bill in university, although you've got lots of contradictory things going on, uh, could potentially be quite useful. Mm -hmm. And and you think for some people in the Conservative Party and the high up in the Conservative Party, genuinely do recognise that there's a problem here and genuinely do want to push back against it. But it seems that what they're up against, and that you could say, well, they've got the people on their side. You know, you look at the overwhelming landslide victory that the Conservatives got last time they, they stood in an election, a uh, general election. But because you've got the civil service, the media, academia, you know, so many of these cultural institutions dominated by this work outlook, even when the government wants to try and get something even tiny bit kind of anti-woke through. Um, first of all, you have the civil service in to do a kind of down tools and we're not going to play ball and cooperate. And then you have the media kind of pushing back with this enormous criticism. Then you have like people appealing to lawyers and the legal system kicks in. And it just makes it very, very difficult for change. Well, this, this is my concerns about the Tory party, and one of many. Uh, one of which is that I see elements of woke in their approach. I mean, it, the online safety bill, even the title of that, yeah. online safety bill, the, the phrases such as speech that is legal but harmful, that, that's out of the lexicon of the woke. That's exactly where it comes from. No, absolutely. I've got to remember, you know, it was the Conservative Party, I mean, not under Boris Johnson, but under Theresa May, that, that set in place all this gender self-identification. You know, yeah. that, that's, that's come from the Conservative Party. This was Theresa May's bid to kind of throw off the nasty party label. And I think some in the Conservative Party kind of just saw this as the next logical step on from gay marriage. Obviously, it, it, Or because they didn't understand it, <laughs> exactly, probably. Exactly. I think, I, and I, in, that, in a way, that's kind of more worrying <laughs> than if they really did understand it. It's almost just like, you know, we, we just randomly pick the next kind of vaguely politically correct thing that we think is going to score us points on Twitter and have people say we're nice and we'll do that without any thought as to the real world consequences of this at all. But I mean the trouble is that now more and more people are realising that in order to endorse uh, gender ideology and implement it uh, you're not really being nice because you're threatening gay rights, you're threatening women's rights so actually it's kind of starting to flip a little bit. But do you think, I mean given the situation that you've outlined, I mean I feel like um, the, the battle against this shouldn't be misinterpreted as a battle of left and right, for one thing, because as we've seen, it's infected all sides anyway. How can any future government, be they Labour or Conservative or even Lib Dem, push back against this kind of thing if the machinery of government is pushing against it? You say the civil service. We know that that is absolutely infected. But all of these quangos, the College of Policing, I mean, the police have been told that it is unlawful to investigate non-crime. The College of Policing seem to think that means they just need to tweak their guidelines a bit. They're just not having it. Uh, they, they think they're above the law, um, or implicitly. That's what it, how it strikes me anyway. So is it is it going to have to be a bonfire of the quangos? Well, I would have no. <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't object to that whatsoever. Um, I think the thing that, that keeps me going and, and the reason why I'm, I'm not pessimistic about this, I, I hope the book suddenly towards the end comes across as, as potentially, you know, that, that, that there are reasons for optimism because these, these kind of woke activists within the institutions, they're powerful, but they are a minority, you know, and I think we've always got to come back to that. Whenever woke ideas are put before the people, 
they lose, you know, they, they cannot stand to scrutiny. And I think deep down, woke activists know this, you know, they know they their ideas just do not stand sunlight. Um, and that's why they are so hostile to free speech, for example, because free speech allows people to ask awkward questions of them. Um, you look at uh, particularly transgender activists, they're so hostile to debate. You know, they, they never um, engage in any form, really, of public discussion with people who are at all critical of what they're saying. And I do believe the reason why they don't do that is because they are at some level aware that there's just a complete hollowness, or if not hollowness, then they're aware that actually what they're pushing is regressive, mm. you know, is not what they pretend it is. So your view is this will inevitably end? Not inevitably, <laughs> no, definitely, definitely not inevitably. Um, it's going to take a, a lot of hard work. And again, another reason for the title, How Woke Won, it's meant, I, I kind of want that title to be a reckoning, if you like, for both sides. I think in some ways there's too much optimism on the anti-woke side, if you like. People pick out, like we were saying right at the very beginning, you know, Elon Musk potentially buying Twitter or Ricky Gervais's Netflix special as being like, hey, it's all over, you know, woke hasn't won after all, the fight mm -hmm. backs on, and, and can get very optimistic, overly optimistic about things. And I think you have to say woke's won to get people to realise actually there is a massive battle ahead of us. But you also have to say woke's won to the other side to get them to own what they've done to stop play the victim. You know, you are powerful, you've, you've made some huge gains, own it and recognise what you've achieved. But ultimately, They've won with their own small clique. They haven't won with the majority of people um, and their ideas don't stand up to scrutiny. So I think what that means is there's a very long, hard road ahead, but pushback is possible. We've got to identify what's going on. We've got to be able to expose it to sunlight, to public debate, to scrutiny, um, allow people to question, to, to kind of, a bit like the Wizard of Oz, pull back the curtains, you know, and, and say, look, I was going to say, here's the emperor with no clothes on, but I'm now mixing up two very different <laughs> fairy tales there. Um, but get people to realise the, va the vacuous, vacu vacuity, vacuousness. <laughs> Either works. <laughs> That's at the heart of this. And um, allow people to have more say. We need some ways of making people more powerful. I mean, we get a, the opportunity to put a cross on a piece of paper once every five years, for five years. It's not enough. I want more referendums. You know, I want more potential, even on kind of local issues, like should a statue come down or should a statue stay? Should a street name be changed? I don't think any local authority should be able to get away with removing a statue or changing a street name without putting it to the local people, the local yeah. community. They should get the say. And then people have to actually have the argument out, why do they want that statue to be removed? And other people need to be able to say, this is why we want the statue to stay. Let people hear those arguments and let people make up their own minds. Power to the people. Joanna Williams, thanks so much for joining me. <laughs> Pleasure, thank you. Really great to speak to you. This has been the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle, and my guest, Joanna Williams. And if you enjoyed the conversation, please do check out Joanna's various books, most notably her recent book, How Woke Won. And if you enjoyed the episode, please do like and subscribe, tell your friends, and join us again next week. See you then.